all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Pohl, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to investors, entrepreneurs, and operators about all things value creation within startups. I am your host, David Pohl, which I've already said, but now I'm going to talk about Caitlin Wiege, who is the managing director of Moodoo's Investments, which is a family office based out of San Diego. Uh, they invest in early stage companies opportunistically, um, you know, from Seth software, manufacturing, um, horse drugs, like lots of different cool stuff that I want to dig deep into. Caitlin, how are you doing? Great. Um, it's been a whirlwind of a May. I don't know if other people are in my shoes, but you know, work travel has been not a thing for the past two years. And now suddenly... Um, I've had my fair share of work travel crammed into to one month now that borders are opening up and everything. So it's been exciting, but busy. Yeah, no, I, uh, I'm really excited about carrying a bag again. There is no substitute for face-to-face interactions. 100%. I was actually just out visiting one of our portfolio companies in Toronto and, you know, I stay in touch with them because I'm actually the chair of the board and, you know, very, very regular cadence and feeling like, you know, Zoom is great, but then you actually get in front of them and you're like, wow, Zoom just doesn't cut it. You know, it's just not, it's not the be all end all long term solution. So, no, no. I, and I think Zoom knows that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, but, but we now know that the convenience is there and you can get a lot done. I mean, there were, you know, multi million dollar transactions happening over Zoom. I think, you know, New Fund, um, a group of angels that I'm president here in San Diego, I remember going into the pandemic and a lot of folks were like, I will never invest in a company unless I can meet the founder in person, I can meet the team and I can see their office. That changed really quickly. And actually, it wasn't (laughs) just us. I mean, there's a lot of like professional VCs that felt the same way. And it's amazing how quickly that changed. Yep. So why don't you give us the background story, Caitlin? Tell, tell us about yourself, Moodus Investments, you know, the, the, the origin story, the name, all of it. Yeah. Well, we can start with the name because that's always a good, like, party conversation, <laughs> conversation starter. Everyone's always like, Moo, do, do something to do with agriculture because it's like Moo, a cow. And I'm like, well, if you take a look at our portfolio, you'll see that it's, it's definitely not agriculture. There's, there is actually one. Um, ag tech company in there that's that's quite remarkable that we can talk about later. But Moodoo is stands for Mom and Dad. So we're a family fund. We're managed by my sisters and my father. And my one of my sisters and my mom are also partners, but they're silent partners. They don't actually operate the the fund the way um, the rest of us do. But Moo stands for Mom. And do stands for dad. So those are the two names that my sisters and I called my mom and dad growing up. It's kind of like a term of endearment. We still call them that. So awesome. And then how did you, how, how did you, is your, is your dad an investor and how did he come about to start up this fund? Yes. I mean, he's been investing for about 30 years. That's when he started the fund. Previous to that, um, you know, his, his original um, background is, PhD in organic chemistry. So he worked for Eli Lilly for a number of years in the 70s, working on drug drug development, and then eventually chemical manufacturing. And then he jumped into our original family business, which is office furniture manufacturing, which brought us to Toronto, which is where I grew up. And then heading into the late 80s, 90s, he really decided that he enjoyed the part of his job. So he was president of that um, furniture company, the subsidiary that was in Canada. And he decided his favorite part of the job was really kind of the new products and like the mergers and acquisitions. Um, and so, you know, he, he, he left that job so that he could start um, investing in and um, consulting with startup companies. 
But of course, in the late 80s and 90s, there really wasn't the same kind of startup ecosystem that you have now in large cities. So, you know, you couldn't go to the local incubator and plug yourself in and find a really cool team to support. You had to go to the local academic institutions. So for us, it was like UFT, Ryerson University, uh, Queens, Western Ontario. Those are the big universities in Southern Ontario. Um, and he would, you know, look for business partners and or excited um, recent MBAs that were getting into this thing called entrepreneurialism, which really wasn't, wasn't a thing back then. Um, and he was really looking to build long-term legacy companies, kind of come in as a silent partner and build the management team and kind of seed them and, and help them grow. And that thesis has kind of changed over time now that my sisters and I have gotten involved the past probably 15, 20 years. And so has that landscape, as you know, seed investing, angel investing, um, VC, that whole landscape has changed in terms of how investments are made and what kind of returns are looking for and, and that sort of thing. So, Have you ever locked horns with your dad on a deal? Of course. <laughs> it wouldn't be a family, you know, we wouldn't call ourselves a family fund if there wasn't. And I wouldn't say locked horns. Um, I think he is always open to be, you know, he has his own thoughts on things. And so does my sister. I mean, we make we make group decisions. We scout individually, but we make group decisions. And everybody is open to hearing your proposal and you know, meaning your, meaning mine, or my sisters and my dad's, um, and and the reasoning behind why we would want to make the investment. So there's never like a absolute no. It's always let's think about this. Together. You you present it to us, and then we'll think about um, you know how this fits into our portfolio, what the return profile is, and maybe we can come to an agreement. It's more like that. Okay, right. So you you can have you can have intellectual conversations about it uh, yes. without. You know, and, and everything's, every, everyone has to listen, right? That's, that's the, that's the rule. Yeah. The rule is everybody listens, gives each other, you know, space to kind of, um, like I said, propose the deal and, and we try to get into each other's shoes and on why it's important. And I think another key though, you know, working with family is difficult. And I know now we live in kind of a virtual work world. We've always been virtual. So that's been helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm here in San Diego, but the, the family office is virtual. My dad's in Arizona, splits his time between Arizona and Toronto. My sister's in Boston. Cool. I have another sister who splits her time between Cleveland and um, Phoenix. And so when you have that nice space working together as a family, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I would say it's much easier. So that's, that's fantastic. So who's got the best IRR? <laughs> I asked the hard questions, Caitlin. <laughs> I mean, I would say, you know, my my sister Jessica has been uh, was has been an active partner longer than I have, so she has um, a few more exits under her belt. Nice. Than I do. That, that's a that's a timing thing. That's not. It is a timing yet. thing, absolutely. <laughs> um, and so, and we're not competitive at all, actually, believe it or not. We will jump really? in and help each other oh, wow. on deals all the time. Yeah. That sounds like a on- very healthy relationship. It is. It is. We, we get along really well. Um, and it's all about kind of like, you know, we're working to, I think the good thing about it being a family and not having the same pressure of, of having outside investors you know, we're, we're all about just kind of working together and we have, you know, we're, we're patient capital as well. So we're willing to put in the time um, with each of our uh, portfolio companies and really dig in and give them what they need. And if that means I have to support my sister on a deal and she needs to support me, um, you know, even at the board level, uh, we, we do that. So, yeah, no, I think that's great. Um, You know, we, I was involved in a multifamily office doing, inter, you know, uh, software type companies and investing through them. And it was difficult um, because, you know, I think family office money, at least in my experience, has always been a little bit more emotional because there's not a capital mandate going out. And the really, there's a really an investment committee of one. Right? And that's the guy mm-hmm. who is the, the person, you know, the, the, in this case, my case was a patriarch, right? And then mm-hmm. it was kind of just a, we would, all, we would all have a talk, but that was just for formality. Yeah. Well, the good thing about us is that there is a, there is a patriarch, right? My dad. Um, but there, I have four older sisters, 
So three of them are, you know, active in the fund like I am. And so we outnumber him. And my mom <laughs> being my mom being the the woman that she is, she did not raise wallflowers. She raised very opinionated, very powerful mm-hmm. um, women. And um, so, yeah, so, you know, the patriarch has his his ideas, but but also he's open to listening to all of us. So that's my dream. I have three young girls and I would love if they would want to, to work in the family office because they would be, in my opinion, vipers, right? I mean, just nonstop ninja killers. And um, I, I, I honestly think that if there were more women in, in PE and VC, we would probably all be out of jobs. Because, I love know, that. <laughs> no, I really do. Because I mean, like, like I, I, I feel like, you know, so much and me included is just so driven by ego and, and, you know, the, the soft skills are, are really hard to, um, to get at scale. Right. Uh, for at least in my opinion. Yeah. Well, I think it's also that collaborative, that collaborative part, right? Like, I'm not saying that, that, um, men as leaders are not collaborative. I just feel like women are so used to being collaborative and that's kind of a superpower too. And, and women, I feel listen, right? I mean, as opposed to men are, uh, wait for their turn to talk yeah. and they call that listening, <laughs> you know, at least in my opinion. Yeah. Sometimes um, don't wait. Just kidding. Yes. Yeah, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes they don't wait. <laughs> So you all have your own sourcing abilities. Tell me a little bit about kind of how you think about strategizing and the overall investment thesis that's evolved over time and um, kind of IRR, IRR profiles, what types of companies you want to broke into. But you seem very broad. So we'd love to kind of know the parameters that you guys set. Well, the parameters are funny because there really aren't that many because um, it has evolved over time. So like I said, my dad originally was investing uh, with an expectation of legacy companies. And we do have one of those leg- legacy companies um, still operating today. And that's um, the pharmaceutical manufacturing company up in, in Toronto, which I chair of the board. And then, like I said, when my sisters and I started getting involved about 15 years ago, landscape was changing. Like the angel investor uh, was kind of like the heyday of the angel investor and a lot of... Um, you know, new VCs were coming on and uh, a lot, a lot of, a lot more um, capital in the system and more talented teams to invest in. So there was a little bit of a shift in the, in how we make investments. And we kind of dabbled in making a lot of little investments. So kind of following that portfolio, the math of the portfolio of like needing to invest in at least 12 to 25 companies because, you know, a certain ratio is going to, not succeed and you need to return at least, you know, your investment um, by creating this diversity. Um, and we saw some success there, but actually um, given that my dad's real comfort zone is building companies, we kind of reverted back to that um, thesis and more, some of our more um, recent successes have been when we come in really early sometimes first check in and then lead the round and participate in a way that's more than monetary. So like maybe it's a board board position or it's um, an advisory role, if it makes sense, um, and then continue to follow on um, as long as we can until exit. And a lot of times the, the, t- the company profile is one that is going to be sustainable and probably break even uh, um, earlier than, than maybe your typical profile. And one where the entrepreneur founder is really focused on um, utilizing and conserving cash rather than just fundraising. And the reason why that's exciting is that sometimes we can exit after only a few rounds, right? And so that may not be what a VC would be looking for because a lot of the times they're looking for, you know, something that's going to be a hundred X and a unicorn. And that's, that's kind of the economics of the fund, um, that's the only really way that they can manage the economics. And for us, it's like if we can be 20, 30 X all day long and maintain our position in the company, that's great for us. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't shy away from the 20 X's. Those are, those are pretty good. Those are, those are, pretty, those are yeah. pretty good outcomes. But just meaning like, you know, because I think a lot because because we are a family owned fund, um, the economics are different. And, um, you know, because of the the history and the 
the the comfort we have in coming in early, it makes sense to look for those kinds of deals. Whereas a typical VC would would not be looking for those type of deals. Yeah. And there's like, and there's all the ones in between, right? You right. know, I, I just feel like in the last two or three years, there's a lot of people that fall under the term venture capitalist. Some of them are the like, I want the power law return, you know, where we, it needs to have a ginormous market and a ginormous, you know, upside potential. And then there's the private equity guys that want to dabble in, in, in venture capital and they've got more of a lower, lower miss rate, uh, marginally profitable type profile. And then there's everybody in between that really doesn't, you know, really know what they're supposed to be doing, right? Because they haven't really d- done it a lot. And so they're just kind of funding companies, right? And, um, right. you know, and then so it sounds like from your perspective, you know, your capital is very patient. You don't have the need to mark up your investment, right? Which requires usually tons of capital and yet another VC shoving in a ton of capital. So that TVPI, like, you know, multiple uninvested capital is not really an issue for you um, because, it doesn't matter. You're worried about the basic fundamentals of the business and you're so deeply entrenched in the business that you can offer meaningful feedback. Exactly. And support them along the way. So, yeah. So what are some of the, what are the, some of the companies that you personally work with that you're excited about? Pump your book. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think I've talked about on a previous podcast of a local company called Neuralace. I sit on the board for, and that is a medical device company that is focusing on um, treating neuropathic pain non-invasively and without pharmaceuticals or opioids, which is huge, right? So one of the things that drives me is making impact, but um, we're not necessarily an impact fund. Um, But if we're going to invest in a company, we want uh, the company to have some sort of make a, make a, a big difference in the world and not just a return profile. And so that's, that's a local company here in San Diego. I sit on, like I said, I sit on the board Really, really, really exciting what they're doing. Um, they raised a Series A last year. They got FDA clearance. Now they're now working on reimbursement. Um, their go to market is kind of working with um, the VA hospital, which is a patient population that really needs this solution. Um, really taking care of our men and women in service. And a lot of them, you know, do deal with PTSD and, and neuropathic pain. And, um, you know, that patient population was very affected by the opioid crisis. So it's really nice to be um, involved in in such a, you know, wonderful product that's going to make a big difference for a lot of people. Um, And then also to be working with a very passionate founder, local founder here um, in San Diego as well. That's kind of what I've been focusing a lot of my time on. Um, The other really, I mean, it's hard to like, like, I hate picking favorites, right? It's just, it's hard because we are so involved with each and every one of our companies and they're all wonderful companies. We have been focusing more on women founders and underrepresented founders as of late. Um, my sister Jessica, um, if you go back to kind of impact, my sister Jessica is now chief operating officer. So she's actually hopped into operating one of our portfolio companies. And what's really exciting about this company talking about impact, it's called Kinet Bio. And what they do is they are creating a additive, a very healthy additive to um, fish feed. And this is the feed that goes into large um, fisheries. And what they do is they take a readily um, available microbe and through a fermentation process, they can turn it into a protein that actually improves the microbiome and health of fish in fish farms. And, And the reason why that's really important is because right now the inputs that we have when we grow fish and farms are usually monocrops like soy and corn. They're not good for the environment to be growing them and supplying them. And they're also usually loaded with, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> um, bad, bad stuff. Bad stuff. Yeah. It's Friday afternoon, a lot of bad stuff. And that's, going into our the food that we're eating and so we're consuming it that way and then also the fish are not staying healthy and even with the with the nutrition nutritious feed that they have that they, that is available in the process of growing fish for food they get to a certain so they start out as like baby fish juvenile and then when they get to a certain size they have to move to um you know a larger if they're if they're this is a farm right and it's it's contained in a tank they then need to be moved into a larger tank so they can continue to grow until they're the size of which we can consume. And that um, transfer from 
juvenile moving into the adult tanks is very stressful. And this additive that we have, this this um, sustainable protein that we have, works with the microbiome of the fish and keeps them very healthy. And so that transfer from juvenile to adult, um, they, the, the farms usually have a really high mortality rate, which costs them a lot of money. And then it's also very wasteful um, and it's less food to feed the world. And so this is able to keep the fish healthy. And so during that transition, that stress um, that lowers the mortality rate by a considerable amount. So it helps the bottom line of the farmers um, and it also helps um, us sustainably um, feed the planet with sustainable protein. Yeah, just when you think the world's out of ideas, right? The fish food guy comes and completely like transforms how fish farming's done. How'd you source that one? That that's from my sister. Her background is bio biochemistry. She lives in Boston. Um, she connected um, with another scientist that understood the technology. The technology came out of Harvard. Um, that was a really good example of coming in really early because I feel like the the founder um, pitched this to her on the the story goes the back of a napkin at a Starbucks. Um, and her, given her background, was like, hmm, this is really, really interesting and there's a lot we can do. And there's so much more that this, they call it the bug, this bug that they that they ferment. I am not a bio, like a biologist, as you can tell. Um, there's so, it's a platform now. There's so many things that they can do with this bug that um, is going to improve the, the fisher, fishing and in, fishery industry. Um, but you got to start with, you know, you got to start with one market first. That's amazing. That's so cool. What a cool business. And like... When you work for just a standard VC fund where your mandate's B2B SaaS, I mean, like things exactly. can start looking really repetitive. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that, that's, that, that's super cool. So when you're looking and you're like first check in and you're super early and you're looking at business plans on the back of napkins at Starbucks, what are the, what are the heuristics that, that you look for and, and, and people picking? Because you're not company picking at that point. No, you're, well, yeah. I mean, the product has to be interesting, um, but but as most um, seed investors understand that you can invest in an A product and a B team and it just won't survive. Right. But in investing in an A team with a B product, that A team can turn it into an A product very easily. I mean, obviously you need to vet the product and make sure that the market's big enough and that the technology is unique enough and it's scalable and all of those wonderful things. But again, it's an early early stage companies. So there's, there's nothing, there's nothing that guarantees that that product is going to succeed the way that you think it's going to, but the person behind the wheel has a huge impact um, and influence on how that product survives and makes it to market. And so uh, the things that we look for is really um, founder market fit. So we've all heard of product market fit. We talk about founder market fit and you can tell that by spending time with a, with a founder, do they have the passion? Do they understand the purpose behind what they're doing? Who are they? Why do they feel like they're the right person to bring this product to market? I, I ask, you know, I, I like to learn all about like you know, their childhood, like their, you know, how they came to be. I mean, sometimes you're talking to a, a founder and it's not cut and dry, like, oh, you know, I always knew I was a an entrepreneur from the age of six when I had my paper route and then I went to you know, I went and got my MBA, blah, blah, blah. That's great. But sometimes it's, it's, it's not that path. And that doesn't mean that they're not capable. And sometimes it's, it's the fact that they know everything about the market that they're in and they know how to attract talent and they know where their blind spots are and they are not, um, you know, they're humble enough to know that they need to surround themselves with the right people. And so that that's kind of what we start to focus on. Our thesis was really put to the test during the lockdown, during, you know, the pandemic. The, the majority of our portfolio not only survived, but thrived. You know, these, these are folks that care enough about their, um, their industry. They know enough. They're passionate enough to, you know, set everything aside, 100% focus, get creative, um, make an opportunity out of a crisis, and just kill it. Yeah, I um, <clears throat> I agree with a lot of the, the the traits and qualities that that you outlined. 
you know, if we are seed investors and like we are in the people picking business, like that's like a, an incredibly hard thing to do because I believe that everyone thinks that they intuitively know people, right? Like, I don't know of anyone who's just like, well, I'm really bad at reading people. And some I don't know, people, I think, yeah, some people are. Oh yeah, no, and that's a really nice blind spot to, to identify. Um, and and everyone's founding team, you know, everyone's team thinks they're incredible, right? I mean, you know, they, they would. They, especially when they're pitching to you and their existing investors will always say, well, their team's great, right? Because they're in the deal. And, you know, so it's, so I, I totally, I totally agree with you, but you know, it's, it's one of those things that you kind of know it when you know it, right? You can't, it's hard to describe, but there's this, this subtle curiosity about the person. Um, you know, I have a couple of different rules, like, you know, and I'm sure this is obvious, but like, you know, like, the utmost moral integrity, right? If, if things start to come across, like, you know, your, your numbers start to get mixed up and, you know, like, you know, agreements that you've made verbally start to go soft and, you know, some, some things and traits around that, that's just a huge red flag because money is just too hard to make in this business to deal with people that have shades of gray and, uh, you know, and then basically being able to, you know, work, work their, uh, their, their butts off for it. No, no, no. It was interesting when you were talking about like there's certain like the numbers sort of start to go like maybe it's reporting, but um, it did kind of jog my memory. There's been a couple of times where I felt very confident about a founder and then we've gotten into negotiating a term sheet and or negotiating through kind of all of the closing docs and red flags start to come up there. Right. Like if they become very adversarial I mean, I'd like to think that we're really reasonable investors. We're not looking to take advantage of, of any any teams. We totally understand um, that it's hard to be an entrepreneur. We understand that entrepreneurs like to, you know, maintain equity. And um, But when you start doing those negotiations, you can start to see a lot of your personality, a lot of the personality and actually due diligence is a really good opportunity to vet a founder as well. And for the founder to vet, the um, investor. It's not all about investors um, vetting founders. The due diligence process can actually be a really wonderful process where founders can learn a lot about their company um, instead of looking at it as like a lot of work and that the investors are just trying to call my baby ugly. There's a there's a chance to like really forge um, a good relationship with your investor and the investor to 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 forge a really good collaborative relationship with the founder, because once you sign those documents, it can be a lot like a marriage, right? And, and setting the foundation during due diligence, learning about using the opportunity, the questions from the investors, the information that they want to extract from you as a way to learn more and more about your company and for the investor to kind of learn more and more about the company as well. Um, and not really look at it as a time to be like overly critical, just like a, a learning opportunity, right? Yeah, I find uh, the term sheet dance back and forth is a pretty emotional time. It totally because, because everybody like thinks they're getting fucked, right? <laughs> like and like everyone, you know, in my in my my experience, and I've I've been a victim of this. I've I've gotten super angry during term sheets, and I'll I'll admit it. And you know. Um, you, you kind of come to the point where, you know, you're just talking at each other. Like no one's really listening to kind of what we talked about before. Yeah. But the trust issues to me, that's a red flag, right? Like um, you can kind of tell when there's unreasonable terms, right? And, and sometimes uh, the founder doesn't know what they don't know because this is the first time they did it. They do it. And, you know, you may give them a piece of advice or even ask them to like double check with their attorney and, and there's still kind of that that really deep-seated mistrust. Um, and I just feel like if that's really existing during something as preliminary as the term sheet, I don't know that that's just going to go away. Right. No, I, yeah, no, I, yeah. And a natural distrust, you know, a, uh, you know, it, at the end of the day, you have to be in bed with these people after you sign. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's definitely a people business. And, you know, the, there's... I always say to, to founders, I was like, we know we have a good deal when both of us are happy or both of us are unhappy. <laughs> like we just, we both exactly. have to be on the same page with that. That's that. That's my point, right? So it's an opportunity to really, really understand the person on both sides of the table. 
on both sides of the table, on both sides of the table. Uh, cool. So tell me what, uh, how, how you're spending your days now when you're not working with Moodoo's portfolio companies. And I know you have, you're pretty involved in the angel community in San Diego. So I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I would call it all work because <laughs> it's all tied, right? I mean, a lot of the deal sourcing, um, that we do for Moodoo's comes through some of the angel groups and the ecosystem that we're involved in. Um, I spend a lot of my time with um, a local angel group called New Fund Ventures, um, which I'm currently the president of. And uh, New Fund Ventures is a now a collaboration of close to 400 different um, members or angel investors. And um, so, yeah, so we work together to source deals, um, invest in deals and mentor and kind of um, offer as much help as we can to our portfolio companies that come through. We also have um, a local, a local, it's actually not local anymore. I mean, we are local. We have a local focus, but a lot of our members now are virtual and, a, and you can thank the pandemic for that, but that's been actually very, very helpful because we've been able to expand um, the knowledge base that, that, that we can work, work together with um, to vet deals. Some of our active, our most active um, investors at New Fund are, are not in San Diego. One of ours is actually in Alaska. So it's just really wonderful uh, that we've been able to expand our membership because um, we're only as good as our membership. And so I don't know if you want me to talk a little bit about what angel groups are or... Yeah, no, I think I think everybody, you know, usually has a uh, has a um, a good context about it. One thing that I've known about New Fund, which is a rebrand from Tech Coast Angels, yes, um, is that you invest through a fund, right? You don't yes. actually have to have everybody like circle and make a decision. So I'd love to talk about just the efficiencies and inefficiencies of angel groups, because, you know, I've been involved in angel groups where that's not the case and it's, it's, it becomes very, very, very difficult and founders just don't want to come. So love to hear more about that. Yeah. So you are correct. We recently rebranded from Tech Coast Angels San Diego. So Tech Coast Angels is a network of angel groups across Southern California. We were the San Diego chapter. We recently rebranded just because there was a lot of new initiatives that we had taken over the last couple of years and our membership had grown. Um, and we really felt like it was time for us to kind of move on on our own and continue to um, grow the business model the way that we have. And part of that unique business model is the fund. So a lot of angel groups, um, I think the criticism about angel groups is that we are, angels are individuals. They work together really only to source deals and maybe vet deals and they invest individually. So as a founder, when you come to a group of angel investors, it's hard to know how much money you're going to raise because everybody is investing individually. So when you go to a fund, you know a little bit about that fund. You know what their typical check size is. You have a good idea of like their thesis. So as a founder, it's easy to say, hey, I don't know if I'm going to bother applying to this fund or that fund because I have a good idea of like, you know, how that's going to fit within my raise. Um, and so we designed this annual fund to make the entrepreneurial journey easier to come to, to come through our group, right? So we still, we still vet, well, we actually vet deals individually, but then, or we source deals individually, and then we vet them together in screening um, opportunities. And then we work together as a team to go through the diligence and negotiate. If, we're, if we are negotiating term sheets and legal documents, we do that. Um, and there, there are angels that in our group that invest individually, but the majority of our, of our members, I think now close to like 85%, invest through what we call our annual fund. And so every in member has a chance to invest um, you know, they can invest as many units as they want into the fund. And then that fund then invests is usually a four. There's sometimes there's sidecar investments, sidecar funds where um, angels will make their individual investments first. And then the fund, we go forward with our fund. So usually the fund is the one that's making the investment first. And then the individual investors can then um, invest alongside the fund. And that's kind of nice because if the fund is investing, it usually means it's a very popular and investable deal. And then if you're already invested, if you're a member who's invested in the fund, you can then double down 
um, by making an individual investment as well, which is really, really great. And so we try to raise the fund yearly. I would say um, we do a capital call and it's usually um, depleted by eight to nine months. So we just depleted our, our ACE 22 fund and we're about to do capital call for our next annual fund, probably beginning next week. And that has grown over time. Yeah. I mean, that that is so awesome because you know, you're giving optionality. I mean, all the reasons you said, but like you get, you're giving optionality. Like you're saying, I want to do angel deals. Okay. Where's your check? Right. Right. <laughs> and right. right. And then, and then, so they commit to the angel deals and then if they want to be active, there's opportunities to be active. Right. But nobody can kind of just hide in the cut and waste anyone's time. Right. Like if you want to commit to angel deals, commit to the angel deals. And if you want to be an influence on how to either pick the companies, diligence, the company, source, the companies, then, you know, there's plenty of opportunities to do it. Yeah. And the other really cool thing about this fund is it became a really uh, great way to onboard and interest more investors because there's a lot of folks out there that are highly qualified and meet the SEC guidelines of, of an individual angel investor, but don't invest because it's intimidating and it's high risk, frankly. And it's hard to understand, you know, how to make investments and then how to vet all of those things. And again, if we go back to kind of the idea of having to diversify your portfolio, because the reality is, you know, nine out of 10 startup companies are going to fail. You really have to create that diversity. And usually the minimum check size for any given deal is about $20,000. That is not normally um, something that's accessible to everybody to be able to write, $20,000, $20,000 checks a year or however, maybe it's over two years or whatever. Um, And even if it is, it's if you don't know anything about it, that's not something you're just going to start doing, right? You want to learn a little bit. So what this allows you to do, the fund allows you to do, you can buy a unit for a relatively, you know, a much lower price than, you know, $200,000 into, you know, your, your first portfolio. Um, and then you can be a part of the fund, a part of the group, learn from angels around you that have been investing for quite a few years. So get yourself involved with sourcing, get yourself involved with diligence. Um, and then you, your, your small, smallish investment then invests with the fund into like this year we did 25, we invested in 25 companies. So you automatically get the diversification without putting a lot of risk capital in and you get to learn. And and what's great about that is we've seen new investors, um, you know, they'll buy one unit in the fund and then they will learn so much and feel comfortable. Then they'll start um, investing alongside the fund and then they'll increase their investment in the fund the next year. So it's like, people become more and more comfortable with it and then they're able to deploy more capital. So it's great for the group and it's great for, you know, the ecosystem around us. That's amazing. That's amazing. And then, so how are the, how are the funds performing? Actually really, really well. It's still, it's still early. We all know that funds have a life of really like seven to 10 years. And our first fund, I think was about, I think it was four years ago. Um, you know, it's, it's, they start to, when you're doing them every year, it's, it's, you know, it's, you have to think like, oh, was that portfolio company in that one or what? But, um, I guess the, the, um, the really early data is showing us that at least the first two funds, which was ACE nine, ACE 18, ACE 19 and ACE 20 are performing in the top 25% of nice. all managed funds so far. Like it's still early, right? These are organic um, things are changing all the time um, with the return for the, the overall return profile for the for the fund. Um, but we're seeing top 5%, top 25%, and that's across the board, even professionally managed VC funds. So that's very that's exciting. Incredible. Yeah, that's super exciting. And, you know, it, it says a lot to diversification and your sourcing ability, right? Because these companies are super early. Well, and it says a lot to the about the members, right? You're only right. as good as your members. Right, exactly. Um, so tell me, you know, I, I follow you on Instagram and LinkedIn and, you know, there's something that's, you know, super interesting about you to me that um, I'd love to talk about because I relate to it a lot. And that is your openness about, you know, having attention deficit disorder or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And, 
you know, how it affects your life on a daily basis and how you live with it. And, um, you know, it's, I don't, I think it's a something that's not really talked about, you know what I mean? And, you know, people just kind of label themselves that and, you know, I don't know. So anyway, I want to talk to you about that because you're clearly well, well versed on the subject. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That's something that I'm starting to focus more on. Um, I focus a lot on neurodivergent women, but there's a lot of men also that, and, and I guess I'll back up and say neurodivergent is kind of the um, all encapsulating word for those with ADHD, <clears throat> maybe autism and some other sensitivity disorders. <clears throat> I don't even like to use the word disorder, right? Because you know, everybody's mind is different. Um, and some of these things can actually create superpowers, but not enough people talk about it. And I think women especially. So, you know, I grew up in the early 80s, you know, into the 90s. And I think when ADHD was first being noticed, um, women were overlooked because it was thought of being like little boys can't sit still kind of um, issue, right? But um, women with ADHD... Give, give them Ritalin. Right, 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 right. Um, and so I've just been doing a lot. I was, I was diagnosed in my 20s, right? And I spent a lot, you know, a lot of my childhood knowing that, like, something was different. That, you know, like, I couldn't... They, I didn't work the same as everybody else. And I felt a lot of the times that I didn't fit in. But I knew I was smart. And I knew I was driven. But it was very difficult to be fitting in the conventional way of teaching in the conventional school system. And I had to kind of make up for that and and kind of created what could be semi unhealthy perfectionism where you see everybody else, you know, being able to sit down, they can study, they can take these tests They're you know, not thinking twice about it. And for someone like me, I would you know, try to prove by working 10 times harder. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I get the, you know, I, I'm not just getting a good grade. I'm, you know, and it's, and it, and it doesn't look like ADHD because these women are successful and they are leaders and they've worked their way through college. Um, but it's a lot of what we call masking. Right. And a, a lot of women were uh, not diagnosed and they, they now call as this is kind of the Gen Z, I'm sorry, not Gen Z, Gen X and um, elder millennials as like the the forgotten generation, right? So I, I think when I was finally diagnosed, I, I looked back on my childhood and it was so obvious, right, that um, I struggled with a lot of, uh, of, of a lot of areas of my life and I worked really hard to mask it and how exhausting that was. Um, and it's so clear now and... And it's hard to think back and say, hey, you know, if I had been diagnosed like the boys were in my class or in, you know, my generation, um, what would have it, what would my, you know, my schooling look like, my career look like now? Maybe it wouldn't have been such a struggle. And the reason why I call it out is because um, there's a thought process that, you know, people with ADHD or maybe high functioning autism can't succeed, right? Like, those are the people that are can't finish projects or there's a there's also a thought of them being lazy or discombobulated or disorganized. And those people can't be the top of their class. They can't run a company. Well, actually, they can, um, you know, because they can use certain aspects of their neurodivergence as a superpower, which is being curious in many things finding topics and hyper-focusing on them and, and learning everything there is about it and um, not being afraid to take risks is another part of it. And so these are superpowers. Once you understand, once you're diagnosed with it um, and you can learn how to, to wield these in your favor. And that's why a lot of entrepreneurs actually um, are diagnosed with ADHD. So, so it's just, it's a, it's a, there's a big misconception that you can't be smart and you can't succeed if you have any of this neurodivergence, but you actually can. Yeah. I love the term superpower. You know, I don't, I don't think I was able to identify, I, didn't, I never had the name for it superpower, but when I started my firm last year, I decided that I was not going to do anything that I wasn't good at. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I was, you know, and yeah. I was just, and I was just going to figure out how to outsource it or, you know, pass it off to my associate. I hired for it. And I just focus completely on what drives me and what I'm good at. And, 
and it's paying off in spades. I'm like 150% of somebody normally who would have this role because I've got, I've got the gift, right? And right. the problem is, is you don't, you don't have the, if you don't have the channel, like it's, it's confusing. You know what I mean? Like not being able to conform, you know, not being able to conform in a way that is, um, is super, uh, is, is, is super depressing, really. Um, I, I yeah. think I've really mas- mastered it at, at work. I don't think I've mastered it at home. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I definitely need, because I've got a wife and three kids. I definitely need, I don't know if it's, what do I need? Medication? I mean, I take a shit ton of Wellbutrin. Um, what, are, there, are, there, are there training exercises? What, what, what do I got to do? Yeah. I mean, it, it's different for different people, right? And so, you know, it's the same thing you're talking about, like once you're aware of it and then you focus on the things that you're just not, you know, there's, you've got your genius zone, which is the stuff that you're really good at and it really excites you. And then there's a zone, here goes my ADHD. There's the zone in between, which I'm forgetting what it is, where it's like, (laughs) you're, you're good at it and you don't quite like it, but you'll do it. And then there's kind of like that bottom where it's like, you're not good at it and it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for you, but you feel like you have to do it. And that's like when you're in school um, and you're forced to do all those things that you just, it's just not that I'm not built that way. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't be, I should be focusing on the things that I'm really, really good at. And once you can figure what out, what that is and what excites you, um, then you're able to, to succeed and excel. And there's other people that are really good at the things that you're not good at. You don't have to be all of those things. And it's also a great way to learn how to delegate, right? So in, in my early career, I was such a perfectionist and I was afraid to let go of any everything because I'm like, ooh, then they're going to know that I'm not good at everything, right? And that was, yeah, they're going to take it and then they're going to find out that like, I'm not good at everything and there's only certain things. And then you start to realize it's like, no, oh, I, I shouldn't be working on that. It's exactly what you're talking about. It's like, this is what I'm good at and this is how I'm going to succeed and this is how I show up the best for my family, for my you know, for my work, for my founders, for everybody around me, when I focus in on those things that I'm that I'm really good at. And that could be, you know, I was finally prescribed um, Adderall in my 20s. And, you know, medication is not for everybody. For me, it really, really, really helped. Um, Meditation is good. There's other sensory things. I'm somebody who um, you can see even on this call, like I'm moving my hands around. Um, I seek sensor, I seek um, simulation. And so I've now after the out of the research that I've done, I've realized there's things that I can do while I'm working that help my focus because I'm constantly I live in a in a state of under um, stimulation and I'm always seeking stimulation. And so when I have to put heads down and do heads down kind of focus work, which is sometimes very difficult for me, especially if it's something that I'm not super interested in, but I got to do it. Um, I can do things like have a fidget, something to fidget with in my hand. Um, I have a sensory swing that I can go and like sit in the sensory swing and kind of swing back and forth. Does that, does that, weir- does, does that weird people out on zoom? No, that, I do not do that on zoom. <laughs> <laughs> You're like on but a call. Like, yeah. No, no. It's like when I have to do things like I have to actually like focus in and read on, read something, or I have to do some really, um, kind of intense brainstorming and, and, um, you know, strategic work. I can sit in the swing and the swing kind of like keeps my body moving. And so that my brain can like focus in. It's very interesting how that works, but I didn't learn that until I, I read certain books and kind of started to, to really understand. Yeah. So what is your favorite book? So that's a good lead in question. There's a book that was released. I want to say it was a couple of years ago by um, a researcher. The name of her name was Janara Narenberg and it's called the divergent mind. And it's talking exactly everything that we just talked about is what she dives into. And she's focusing specifically on women. um, But there are men in my life that have read that book and had a lot of kind of eye opening on new understandings of themselves. Um, And a lot of what she talks about is kind of like focusing in on the superpowers, learning about like, um, you know, under stimulation and overstimulation and how that can help you focus. And this is, I'm talking particularly about ADHD. She also addresses high functioning autism and um, other kind of sensory disorders, but um, ADHD specifically is kind of what I was focusing on in the book. Cause that's, that's what I'm diagnosed with. And it was just mind blowing. Um, there's just so much information in there that is not really talked about, um, you know, in psychology. Cause right now, 
ADHD, autism, those things are typically um, explored and diagnosed through the psychology world. Um, and what she talks about is not all of this stuff needs to be pathological, right? Like it, some of it is just exactly what I said, what I mentioned. It's like understimulation, overstimulation, and understanding how to regulate that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Super very, cool. Very interesting. And then what's the best piece yeah. of business advice you've ever gotten? <laughs> business advice I've ever gotten. Well, there's there's a quote that's actually becoming very true recently for me that I've always kind of thought about. Um, and it's by a gentleman of the, of his name is Seth Godin. And he was kind of, um, he was a very successful um, entrepreneur back in web point So this was like, you know, the, the dot com era. And his quote is change almost never fails because it's too early. It almost always fails because it's too late. And I love that especially now, because I just mentioned web 1.0, everyone's talking a lot about, about web 3.0. Like, what does that mean? Well, it means business is connected in, in so many different ways now, right? Like we're an ecosystem. We're connected to our consumers, our stakeholders, our employees, our leadership through so many different channels. You know, there's two-way communication, there's three-way communication, there's, you know, LinkedIn, social media, review sites, blogs, medium, chatbots, emails, email lists, so many ways for all of us to get to, to kind of speak to each other and companies need to be focused and, and that causes so much change, right? Like, cause it, you can't, you can't sit still when your stakeholders and your customers can connect with you on so many different levels. Um, and change is so important in, um, companies now. So it's like just constantly thinking about and staying ahead. Right. Awesome. Awesome. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, everybody, this is the Capital Stack where we talk to investors, operators, and founders about all things value creation. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We are on all the major platforms, Apple, Spotify, YouTube. You can search my name, David Paul, or look in the Capital Stack. Any review would be nice. You can give me a bad review. I'd love to read it. Anyway, thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.